All right, uh, another recording here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast, kind of diving into uh, uh, the what's been going on here in uh, you know Minnesota sports. We're gonna have a, a Twins focused. Uh, episode here today uh talking with brandon warren uh covering the twins does access twins uh you can follow that on Substack, all that kind of stuff uh thanks for joining hey man happy to do it how are you doing uh doing pretty good uh obviously uh, a little bit of stuff kind of going on here in the you know with the spring training kind of in the dog days of it um so far kind of um you know, Andrelton Simmons making his debut this week and uh, just kind of uh, other stuff going on, I guess. What have kind of been some storylines, I guess, so far this spring kind of trying to follow with the Twins? Yeah, I think trying to figure out if Alex Kirilov's going to make the team on a spring training, what the back end of the rotation is going to look like, how Jorge Polanco takes to second base, and then the front end of the bullpen because the bullpen is going to look a lot different with Matt Whistler and Trevor May and Tyler Clippert and Sergio Romo out of the picture. So I don't think it's going to be a worse bullpen. It's just going to be shaken up a little bit because they've got a lot of young kids they really like and some interesting kind of non-roster flyers or guys like Sean Anderson who's on the roster but doesn't have a lot of big league time. So it it's not a ton of questions that are that meaningful in terms of how good the team's going to be, but just how the roster is constructed because – it's going to be a deep roster. It's going to be a good roster. And it's going to be a team that's going to contend for the AL central for the third year in a row. But, you know, like we always say, it might look different on day one than it does on day one sixty-two, And it's not might, it's definitely going to, but it's, it might look different on day one and then day 15 or day 10. So we get tied up a lot in the opening day roster, but it could change a lot pretty early, but that's, that's one of the things I'm looking at is, you know, what non-roster guys have a chance to make it and who's going to be the 26th man, whether it's someone like Kyle Garlick, Brent Rooker, Williams Astadio, Keon Broxton, a whole bunch of different guys. So it's a lot of fun little things. And I think that it shows how good this team is that it's not big things. Yeah, I think that was something kind of as spring training went along is noticing like there was outside of maybe, you know, Will Kirilov win the left field job um, and kind of how will Polanco transition to second base kind of things you mentioned there. It's there, there's no really kind of huge question marks with this team. Like you said, it's how it's going to look. I think, yeah, the bullpen is going to certainly be a difference. The twins really kind of like the Falvin Levine really like to pride themselves on kind of finding these flyers, kind of taking a guy like Matt Whistler, turning him into a a uh, good player and then just kind of finding the next guy and kind of keeping that line moving along. I've like, you know, I have confidence that this bullpen will be pretty good next year. Kind of, I don't know if it'll be at the exact same level, but still should be pretty strong, especially if guys like Duffy can repeat kind of um, the momentum they've been having, but uh, kind of moving on to that, uh, on, onto that Kirloff question, do you think he's going to make the opening day roster? And if not, who does fill in that left fielding spot until the service time makes him able to come up? Honestly, I think he will. It doesn't really make sense to do a service time thing with him because for me, first of all, you know, I don't, I don't like the service time thing because I don't think it's honest or I don't think it's what you should do, but it really only makes sense with your hyper elite prospects who are like 20 or 21. Kirilov is not that age. He's a corner guy. So the idea that his price tag is going to get out of control is not super likely. And we saw with Chris Bryant, the Cubs did it. And then that last year of control, which happens to be this year, was one where they spent the offseason talking about if they were going to trade or non-tender him. So it's really easy to overthink these things. Also, here's what we don't know. What if Kirilov has an Aaron Hicks-like start to his career? He's one for 30 or whatever and gets sent back down. 
then those service days you saved on the front end didn't matter because he ended up getting sent back anyway and not accruing those service days in the first place. So I think if you think he's ready to go from day one, and you sure as heck better if you brought him up in the playoffs last year, you got to have him on the opening day roster because like from a grievance standpoint or an ethics standpoint, if you thought highly enough of where he was after not playing a meaningful game to get him into a playoff game and not only get him in, but get him starting, you really don't have a leg to stand on as far as if he should be on the team to start this season. So I think they know that. I also think they think he's ready. Saw that home run he hit off. I want to say it was Eduardo Rodriguez on Thursday. What a, just what a blast. I think he's, I think he's ready. And it's, it's amazing that he missed a full year due to, I want to say Tommy John surgery, and then a full year basically last year. And yet he's still developed the way he has. He's a very special talent, even if I don't put him in that mix of hyper elite, big time up the middle prospects, he's still going to be a very nice player. Yeah. And I think it was a lot of, like you said, it's, it's a, the twins obviously have a lot of confidence in him calling him up in the postseason and having him uh, get a couple meaningful at bats there. And just, um, you know, uh, and like you said, with him missing time uh, a couple of years and still being able to turn out, hopefully bodes well for a prospect like Royce Lewis. But yeah, I, th- I think Kirilov's uh, such a good talent and, and uh, I think that the twins have to roll with him. I think it just, I'm, I mean, they have guys who can fill in, but I think if you're a team that's trying to win your third straight AL central title, you're a team that's trying to, you know, to break that postseason losing streak that everybody knows about. You have to have a guy like Kirilov get as many MLB at bats as you can get him up to speed and have him try and fill that hole. Because I think that's basically the, uh, the thing with the twins this year, it's no longer if they can win the central, we know that they can do that. It's no longer. Can they field a competitive team? It's can they win in the postseason? And this team on paper looks to be better than the one last season. So I guess the big question is, do you think this team has what it takes to finally be able to win a postseason game? Well, not only that, but it's also about the teams around them. They have to ward off a fast-charging Chicago team, a Cleveland team that's not going to go away because of their pitching, and Kansas City's making waves too. I mean, I think Kansas City's going to win like 78 games and maybe have a, a couple meaningful games in September. But, yeah, you have to account for what everyone else is doing too. And so bringing up Kirilov, just to steal that point for a minute, um, you know, if, if you bring up Kirilov in two weeks, that's two weeks where who knows how you start if you dig a hole in the division. And then if you bring him up and he struggles, suddenly you're spending a month or more on Jake Cave. Whereas if you brought Kirilov up right away and figured out that he was going to struggle, at least then you had the ability to adjust on the fly with Kyle Garlick or maybe Trevor Larnick gets a, a shot early. So I just, I think it's easy to overthink these things. As far as your other question, I, I do think this is a team that is poised to make some noise in the postseason. Um, part of the streak that is kind of fluky is how long it ranges. I mean, it's 18 games, but it's over 17, 18 years. So when you have as big a gaps in the postseason as the Twins have had from 2011 until making the wild card games in, uh, in 15 and 17, I think it was, um, you're just, you're not going to have the same players contributing. And so obviously it's the same fans or in a lot of ways, it's the same fans. And that's where the discontent comes from. But I also did believe Rocco Baldelli in 2019 when he said, you know, we're not worried about the streak that much. And I, I understand why fans didn't care for that because the fans have rooted for the players, no matter who they are. But Rocco doesn't want to feel the pressure of that because he was, I mean, he was a player for most of that stretch. And 
you know, other than Joe Maurer, not many of those guys had overlap. And this is a new group of guys. It's a new group of guys who have to forge their own destiny. And so I, I think they have a chance to make some noise in the postseason, just like I did last year. Now, I, I figured last year was kind of a, a trap game situation because the Twins wanted to avoid the Yankees. And instead, they played the Astros, who lost more games than they won and still came within a game of the World Series. So last year was a bizarre year. I'm willing to throw that one out. But yeah, it, it's kind of put up or shut up time now with year three of this kind of regime plus Rocco. And I, I understand the discontent of Twins fans, and I understand the the disconnect between Rocco's group and the, the fans. But at this point now, I mean, Rocco's had a terrific first two years, and I understand fans wanting progress, even though, you know, we went for like a five-year stretch where they weren't even close to the playoffs. So at some point, you got to feel like you're just happy to get back there. Fans are ready now to start making some noise. Maybe not win a World Series, maybe win a World Series, we'll see what happens. But it's time to, you know, give yourself a chance to be competitive in October. Yeah, and and like you said, it, a lot of it is just kind of flukiness of the playoffs. I think there's that famous Billy Bean quote where he's basically like, I just get my teams into the playoffs and whatever happens, happens, uh, to paraphrase. But I mean, and like you said, it's three different core groups of twins when you talk about going back all the way to 2004 and then to, uh, you know, 2006, 9, 10, and then all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, uh, I like you said, just kind of trying to watch those other competitors in the division. Uh, Kansas City is going to, you know, be a lot better than what they're, you know, the what kind of their last few years have been. They've been very aggressive, uh, more so than you'd think a rebuilding team would be. Uh, Chicago is on the rise with their prospects. They finally made the playoffs. Uh, now they bring in Tony La Russa and, I, that's the biggest question mark for me to the White Sox is how do they respond to Tony La Russa? I think it's going to be a very boomer bust situation with them. <laughs> Emphasis on boomer. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't see it. I don't think it makes sense because it just seems like such contrast. And I know he's saying all the right things as far as being open to modern ideas, but I just don't think his candor is going to resonate with the Dominican influence on the team and the young influence on the team. I just, I don't see a happy marriage there. And so I think you're right. It's going to be boomer bust, but if he doesn't touch base and connect with Tim Anderson, Jose Abreu to some effect, but he's not going to be there that much longer because of his age, but Yoan Mancada, Luis Robert, Eloy Jimenez, there's got to be a strong bond there. And I'm just not sure if that's possible. So I think Ricky Renteria got a raw deal. And honestly, I also don't think that La Russa would have been the kind of guy that I would fire Renteria for. I mean, if, if someone like Rocco was available, I would get it. Or Joe Madden a few years ago because of how well Madden was perceived. I think some of the luster's worn off of Madden in the last few years. But, you know, there are guys that I would, as much as it would stink to treat a guy that way, that I would have let Ricky go for. Tony La Russa is not one of those guys. And I just, I don't think it's going to work. I think people are way, way, way too in on the White Sox this year. And it's, it's going to blow up in their faces. Yeah. I mean, I just saw today the, the betting odds for the world series, the twins are third to win or to win the American league. Uh, the twins are third behind the Yankees and the White Sox. So I, yeah, I think maybe that's twin fan bias in me. I, I think the White Sox are a little overrated. Um, and I think LaRusso kind of be the thing that could honestly hold them back. Like you said, he's got to win over that clubhouse guys like Tim Anderson were skeptical of the LaRusso hiring from the beginning. And we're vocal about that. So it'll be interesting to see how he does that. Honestly, I think, I know Cleveland just traded Lindor 
door. But I think with the, the, the structure that Terry Francona has in Cleveland and they still have some good hitters and they had a Rosario and they, they still have a great pitching staff. Honestly, like I wouldn't be surprised if Cleveland's a bigger threat to the twins than the white Sox. Yeah. Cleveland is a real big boomer bust for me this year, because if, if anybody on that offense gets hurt, you know, obviously Ramirez, but even Rosario could be problematic or, uh, Franmil Reyes, who is basically the Spider-Man pointing meme of Eddie Rosario. If, if any of those guys get hurt, you run into a situation where that offense isn't going to score enough runs. Detroit is going to be more competent. They're still filling in their gaps with some pretty decent players. Robbie Grossman, Jonathan Scope coming back. They're not going to roll over. And what that could mean for Cleveland is maybe if they're if everything goes right, they win 84 games, but if everything goes wrong, they win like 70 or 72. And I called that um, tragic on a different show. And the reason why I say that is because with that pitching staff, you should never have any question. If you're going to lose 90 games, you should win 90 games. And the problem is that their offense just has too many question marks. They have enough guys who could be decent, but they're, they're expecting a lot out of guys like Oscar Mercado and Bradley Zimmer and um, Ahmed Rosario and um, Jimenez, the the Andre Jimenez, they, they need a lot of guys to have a lot of things go right. Yeah, and I think you know this isn't the AL Central of of a few years ago. I think it was 2018 where it was the statistical worst division in the history of baseball or something like that. It's it's gotten a lot better over the years, just with the Tigers and the Royals kind of slowly trying to rebuild their way, and the and the White Sox kind of starting to rise here. But kind of pointing back to the to the Twin Spring training, I guess uh, just kind of uh, following this team, who's had the best spring so far? Mm, I think Josh Donaldson probably. And that's a good thing because, you know, he had such a up and down first season with the twins and there's financial questions about that because if that contract goes sideways this year, there's a real good chance that it won't be good in any of the years of his deal. I think Kyle Garlick has looked good. I don't know how good he'd have to look to make the roster because it's, it's hard to say how much their fourth and fifth outfielders will play, again, depending on what happens with Kirilov. If they don't bring Kirilov up, Garlic and Cave or Rooker and Cave could be a really good platoon and left. But I think Garlic has, has looked good enough to at least make it a tough decision. I think he and Cave both have a single option left, if I'm not mistaken. If not, Cave has zero then, and that makes it tougher for Garlic. But those have been kind of the two guys that I've been – really impressed with Keon Broxton's hit for some power, but I think he's striking out a lot and, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on the catching situation because I think Garver and Jeffers do a lot of things similarly. Well, maybe not to the same extent of each other, but Garver might hit a little more and Jeffers might be a little better defensively, but when it was Garver and Castro, a platoon made more sense. You had Castro who was better defensively and hit left-handed Whereas you're trying to figure out playing time with two right-handed hitting catchers who both have strengths, but it, it's hard to say who's going to play on a given day. Like if you're trying to do a, a daily fantasy lineup or something like that. So, you know, you hear competitions in other sports and it's like, if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. If you have two point guards, you have none. Do you have two catchers? You have none. I, I don't know if that's the case or does Garver DH a bunch because Nelson Cruz needs time off. Does Garver play first? And so no DHs, or do they kind of shuffle things around with Donaldson needing time off? 
if there's a way to get Garver and Jeffers both into a hundred games, I think that would be preferable just because of how good they are, but it's going to be a hard situation to figure out. And I don't know how much spring is going to tell us about that. Yeah. I think uh, the Garver Jeffers situation is going to be a really interesting to watch so far. And I think uh, Garver having a really down 2020 is definitely going to be a, you know, kind of a storyline to watch because his strikeout rate rose. It was, he was like at 23% in 2019 and went all the way up to about 45%. Um, just wasn't seeing it as well at the plate. And, yep. you know, whether it's, you could just call it a wash because of the weird season or whether Garver just had some standard regression for having a really good 2019, um, you know, him taking a step back and Jeffers coming up and kind of proving that he can play at this level. Um, I think, you know, like you said, do they kind of shuffle them around? The twins haven't been afraid to do that. They haven't been afraid to use, um, the DH, they did a lot more uh, before they got Cruz, but you use it just kind of as a rotating spot to whoever they want to have in the lineup that day. Um, I think it'll be uh, something really interesting to watch going forward. I think they roll with Garver to start with, but I think if he struggles yeah. right away, I could see them pulling him for Jeffers really quick. Well, if we look at Garver's last three seasons, so you're talking about his first lengthy cup of coffee in 2018. 2017, he played 23 games. And, you know, when guys dip their toes in, you don't really know much about them. But if you go 2018, 2019, and 2020, so 2018 and 2020, we assume the baseballs were not as doctored as they were in 2019. You kind of average that all out, and you get a guy who averages about 30 homers per 162 games with a 260, 340, 496 slash line. Um, that's solid, man. I mean, that's 60 extra base hits. That's you know, obviously he's not going to play 162 games, but it gives you an idea of the kind of pace a guy like that could sustain. And then, you know, you extrapolate it out to hundred or 120. I still believe in the skill set. The pro- projections for him on baseball reference are 250, 333, 474. Offensively as a catcher, that's definitely top five in the AL, might be top five in baseball. And so I think it's a, uh, Again, it's going to be tough. I, I'm glad I don't have Rocco's job when it comes to divvying up that playing time because you, you want to see what Garver's capable of, especially because he first got hurt and then he was, well, he was slumping, got hurt, and then never really got a chance to get going again. I think we know that his 2020 is, is definitely a wash, but he's also 30. So you don't have a lot of time with him to let him play out the string as opposed to, you know, maybe creeping up the dial a little bit for Jeffers to maybe play 55 or 60% of the time as the long side of that uh, timeshare. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, kind of talking about twins prospects, you were a guy who was high on Jeffers uh, uh, coming up last year. Um, just mm-hmm. talk about kind of what prospect is uh, going to be on the rise or maybe a prospect twins fans, you know, outside of Kirilov should be watching for 2021. Well, it kind of feels like the, uh, the hype train is, is starting to speed up on Matt Cantorino and it's, it's hard to say how fast guys are going to move with, you know, the triple A season starting a month later. And like, if a guy was at high A in 2019 and then didn't play in 2020, but did go to the alternate site, but or for instance, Cantorino didn't join the alternate site until late in the season. Does that mean a guy's going to double A this year? Does it mean he's going to triple A? Does it mean if one of those seasons starts before the other, they'll be sent to that level instead you know, there's a lot of question marks, but what we saw from Cantorino, who is from Rice, and so he's got that college acumen, he's probably a little more polished, is that he's probably a little closer to the big leagues than we realize. And, you know, he came out throwing darts the other day. He and 
Josh Winder, both were, were throwing the ball in the upper 90s with good stuff. I think Cantorino is a lot closer than maybe we realize. And the big thing is, while he might have a, a starting future, he's a little funky. You know, we saw the windup or the, the delivery. He's got some arms and legs that come at you. And getting into this bullpen is going to be easier than it was last year because this year you're going to leapfrog guys like Cody Stashek, Lewis Thorpe, Edouard Colina, um, maybe Jorge Alcala, but I, I'm pretty confident he's pretty sturdy there. And that's going to be easier than it would have been to, to jump over a Tyler Clippard or a Sergio Romo last year, kind of the guys who were in that middle of the mix in front of Duffy, May, and Rogers. So I think there's going to be a lot of fluidity on the front end of that bullpen. We're, we're going to find out for sure if Lewis Thorpe gets that last option, because I guess now it's kind of up in the air as to what an arbiter is going to say. But that's an open spot in the bullpen that I think will go to Thorpe if he's out of options or it'll go to whoever pitches the best in the spring, whether it's a non-roster guy like Derek Law, Glenn Sparkman, or Ian Jabot, Matt, uh, Ian Hamilton. There's all kinds of names. Or is it going to have to be earmarked for, again, an out-of-options guy like Thorpe, like it was last year for Whistler? And, and granted, it worked well with Whistler, too. And like a wise man told me, out-of-options – typically wins these situations. It, it worked for Adalberto Mejia a couple years ago. Didn't last very long. Um, I think Tyler Austin had that situation a, a couple years ago, which is, is hard to believe that it's not that long ago he was on the team. But it's, it's going to be an interesting bullpen mix to crack. And I think we're going to see some guys that you or I are not really expecting from the prospect side of things make that jump because the bullpen is going to need to um, pick up the slack a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, the bullpen's going to be certainly something to watch. You know, guys like Alcala haven't, you kind of got their toes wet in 2020, hoping to kind of take that next step. And then, you know, it's kind of full of uh, outside of, you know, the Rogers, the Duffies, there's a lot of young guys. There's a, trying to kind of uh, develop and prove themselves. And there's also just a lot of flyers that twins really kind of try and like to kind of uh, repolish, re, you know, kind of retool, whatever word you want to use, try and kind of, uh, uh, kind of work on those projects, but looking to the starting rotation, you kind of mentioned the back half of the rotation, obviously with Barrios and Maeda and Pineda, it's really strong up there, but with, uh, you know, and Jay have filling the four spot. So kind of <laughs> that final spot in the rotation, um, I wanted it to go to a guy like Odorizzi, the twins, uh, passed mm -hmm. and, uh, let him hit the open market. Uh, what do you think they do in that, uh, kind of back end? I mean, if shoemaker's healthy, it's probably his to lose and Dobnak either, makes the bullpen in that Lewis Thorpe swingman uh, swingman role. I've, I've kind of compared that to like Jesse Chavez or Yusmero Petit, as far as guys who either pitch a whole bunch and can soak up multiple innings or give you some length as a bulk guy. If you do an opener, a lot of different things you can do with a guy like Randy Dobnak, because situationally, if you need a double play, he can come in and get you one of those two. If Shoemaker stays healthy and that's a huge if, I mean, if you look at his innings pitched the last two years, even when he's pitched well, it just hasn't been much volume. So it, it's kind of asking for a lot. And that's kind of why I thought it maybe made more sense to sign someone like a James Paxton or a Taiwan Walker. Now Walker got multiple years, which was a little bit surprising to me, but good for him, obviously. But I, I thought the, that a one year flyer on a guy who might've been a little bit higher in value a Drew Smiley, although he signed awfully early, or the uh, the lefty from the Blue Jays, um, Robbie Ray. I thought some of those guys made sense to aim a little bit higher, but 
and, and even over Jay Happ too. But I think they're going to tweak Happ. They're going to have him throw some fastballs up in the zone. And I think they also, too, like the bullpen, believe some of these kids are going to force their way. Devin Smeltzer is also a guy who could give you some innings either as a temporary measure until one of the kids is ready, or maybe he shows out and that spin rate and deception gives you something more than you've seen to this point. So I don't think they're as deep as they were last year where they signed Homer Bailey. He barely pitched and they paid him a a pretty decent amount of money. They had Rich Hale kind of waiting in the wings and then he ended up being healthy because the season didn't start on time. And they were still waiting on Michael Pineda to come back from his suspension. They're not that deep, but at the same time, last year, Jake Odorizzi got hurt and Randy Dobnak, who like this year is probably on the outside looking in from the rotation last year, made like the third most starts on the team. So I try not to get too wound up about it because what it looks like now and what it's going to look like even in a few weeks could be drastically different. But again, I think Shoemaker gets the first crack if he can stay healthy, which, um, you know, knock on wood. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously a guy like uh, Jay Happ is somebody that the twins, I think have pursued uh, before he signed with the Yankees, I think back in 2018 or something like that. It's been uh, somebody that Falvey and Levine really have had an eye on um, kind of over the last few years. So uh, kind of replacing that rich Hill lefty in the rotation and yeah, that, that final spot's going to be up for grabs. Uh, A guy like Dobnik could eat some spots, um, you know, and I guess, just, you know, Dobnak's a guy who had a, a strong 2020 uh, at the beginning and then kind of faltered out towards the end. But, uh, you know, I guess what player from 2020 um, is going to have 2021 be their bounce back season and which one is going to maybe regress a little bit? Yeah, I think Mitch Garver has got to be the guy that bounces back. And not because there aren't other guys who are good candidates. I mean, Miguel Sano had a really kind of uneven year. Jorge Polanco was dealing with some ankle stuff. Even Max Kepler was a little bit off his pace, but just for how far that Garver fell, I feel like he's the easy choice to, to bounce back. As far as regression, I, I would be concerned about either Ryan Jeffers or Brent Rooker, but they didn't really play enough for that to really be a factor. So, I mean, other than that, I mean, Kenta had a really, really good year, and it's hard to imagine him repeating quite that but even if he even if he adds a half run to his era it's still 320 and you're talking about a guy who could get some Cy Young consideration so I'm I'm not trying to be too down on Kenta and I'm not trying to be too down on the kids but there's a reason why the sophomore slump exists as a general idea and I think that could be something that Jeffers runs into or you know we'll see how much Rooker gets to play I think that's going to be tied to how healthy Nelson Cruz and Miguel Sano stay and if they have options in left field besides. So um, we'll, we'll see how it, how it goes. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like you've been saying so far, you know, a lot of these problems typically just kind of work themselves out as the season goes along, but kind of what we've been mentioning, there's a, there's a log jam of players. When you look at Kirilov, when you look at Larnick, when you look at Rooker, when you just kind of, you know, Jeffers kind of these young kids are trying to get up on the roster and uh, trying to find some playing time, um, you know, and, and it's hard because they have a lot of good veteran players right now up. And I guess, is it how, you know, I, I don't know the right way to word this, I guess, but how, concerned or how kind of maybe tough of a situation is it for the twins to handle with kind of they're in a window and now they have this kind of next class of prospects coming up. I think it's easier to dip your toes in when you're winning. You know, we saw Aaron Hicks come up and Byron Buxton come up when things weren't as good. Max Kepler too. 
I think it's, and I've asked around and, you know, kind of the general consensus was, I think that they agreed that bringing guys into a winning environment is probably more conducive to development than vice versa. But I think too, you have to create competition. So maybe that's Jake cave getting the first reps and left for Alex Kirilov to take him down because, and I know people hated when Terry Ryan did this back in the aughts, but they'd sign someone like Tony Batista to play third base. And that was to motivate Nick Punto to play better or Jason Bartlett to play better. You can go from an old guy to a kid. You cannot go from a kid to an old guy and then back to the kid because you have nowhere to stash the old guy in the meantime. So with guys who have options or who are young and you got to kind of make them earn their way. If you bring up a guy like, uh, and maybe Kirilov's not a good example, but if you bring up a guy like that, instead of signing Michael Brantley, for instance, then when Kirilov is, is going to falter in the first month, those players aren't readily available for you to sign at that point to patch things up. Now that's less of an issue for the twins right now because of all the depth they have, but back in the day, that wasn't true. You know, you didn't, you didn't even have the ability to sign a Sydney Ponson a month into the season because they're all, you know, grabbed up. And so then suddenly you're dipping into prospects that either aren't good enough to play in the big leagues or aren't ready. And you worry about stunting their development. And so that's where the twins depth has, has really helped them and is going to continue to help them is they're, they're not going to need to force feed guys like Aaron Hicks into the leadoff spot against Justin Verlander for his first MLB game. It might be now Royce Lewis is a bad example, but maybe Royce Lewis comes up and he plays second base instead of short and bats ninth instead of towards the top of the order. And the team says, listen, kid, relax, go out there and play. We're not going to ask you to play short. We're not going to ask you to play a big role in the offense. You just take your at-bats, take good at-bats. The numbers will come, and we're just going to leave you alone. With how much they move Buxton around with hitting leadoff and hitting ninth and hitting all over, it's not to say that that hurt his development because everybody develops differently. But I think the more you can commit to something and have it not hurt your team overall with how much you kind of mess with the guy, you're not compounding the issues that are created when a guy doesn't quite do what he needs to do right out of the shoot. So. I don't know if, if that's mostly me just making up that I think it's better for guys to, you know, dip their toes in when a team's winning 90, 95 games a year, but it sure seems to me to pass the sniff test. Yeah. And uh, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't a great example, but just kind of an easy one off the top of my head is maybe like the 2016 Cubs when they brought up guys like Schwarber and they kind of had some of their prospects and Bryant and all that kind of stuff uh, kind of come up into that environment when they were ready to win instead of maybe a couple of years earlier when they kind of were still at the beginning of their window. Um, yep. And you mentioned Buxton and uh, I guess, you know, there was the talks of extending uh, extension talks between Barrios and Buxton and all this kind of stuff. And uh, just kind of where do you see those going? Do you think that they get a deal done soon? And if you and I, I guess if you can only pick one of the two, which one do the twins have to go with? Buxton, I just think you got to go with the offensive player when you're making those decisions. And it's tough because when you talk about pitchers, there's always that injury risk. And oh, by the way, Byron Buxton's been injured like every year of his career, except for the 60 game season. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think we kind of lose sight of the fact that he was, I mean, he didn't, he didn't play every game last year either. He only played 39. So I guess I should take that back. He wasn't even particularly healthy last year. He was good, but he just wasn't healthy. He didn't get on base. Um, 
but there's just more value potential in Buxton. Like if you sign him now to a five-year deal, you maybe get in at 75 million. Whereas if he just has a monster season this year, you're talking 125, 140, 150. And if he completely falls apart, you know, he's still going to have enough speed and he's still going to have enough defense that he's not going to be a complete bust. It's kind of like Andrelton Simmons signing his, uh, his long-term deal. I think he signed it with the Braves before he was traded, but Simmons never really hit that much, but his defense was so good. People just kind of dealt with it. And so I think it's kind of a sweet spot to give him a shot because he showed last year he can hit for power. Now he didn't really steal bases because of all the extra base hits. You're not stealing third. In fact, he's never stolen third in his entire career, apparently. Um, but he didn't take any walks. And that that's the one thing where it's like he really, really could uh, stand to improve. And that, like with Eddie Rosario, is, a, is probably what's dividing him from being a super-duper star is, is taking a few more walks. But with all that said, it's just hard for me to see value in extending a pitcher when the marketplace is so robust for those guys. And so they're going to kind of pit that value, that free market value, against what um, you know what you're going to pay them. But with that said, and to kind of circle uh, circle the the vote here, it might be hard to find value that Buxton agrees with too because he hasn't been healthy enough. He's been so so good when he's been on the field and healthy, but it's kind of like puddle jumping. You're trying to find the good and the bad and <laughs> separate the two. So. I'm not sure what the right answer is as far as the value. If it was 575 or 580, I'd probably do that. If it's 590 or 5 and 100, that's a little too steep for me. And at that point, I'll wait a year to see what's what. And hopefully it's a little more clear at that point. Yeah, I, I think, it, like you said, there's it, there's a lot of up and down with Buxton. I mean, in 20, I think it was 2017, uh, he, you know, he had such a, a great stretch kind of halfway through the year that he ended up getting MVP votes. And even, mm -hmm. I think he actually got a little bit in 2020. So, I mean, this is a guy when he can stay primarily on the field, he's a guy that, you know, the league does notice and, you know, with his defense and when he, you know, when he, uh, when it hit, when it clicks for him at the plate, he's really, really good. But yeah, it's that it's the injury and it's, you know, obviously that's something that the twins are going to point to. And Buxton's going to point to the fact that when he's healthy, he can be one of the better uh, center. He can be, you know, the second best center fielder in the league. And, you know, I, and with Barrios, it's just, I mean, he's been a solid player. He, you know, he's been good, but it feels like he, it feels like we're always kind of waiting for him to hit that next tier. And maybe it's a little bit unfair of the twins to kind of put him in that, uh, you know, elite kind of pitcher thing, but it feels like that's kind of, at least for me, maybe it's like Brios is a really good pitcher. And I think we take that for granted sometimes because we're waiting mm -hmm. for him to get to that kind of next level. Well, and, and how realistic is that? I mean, he's their best pitcher since uh, Johan Santana or peak Francisco Liriano, who kind of rebounded before the twins traded him. Uh, I think his 2010 was really good. His 2011 was pretty crappy outside of his no hitter, but it, it, you do always want to see a guy take another step. And it just seems like he's stuck in that very nice number two starter. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they had years where they didn't have a number three starter and they had Vance Worley start on opening day against Verlander. Like I mentioned earlier with the, the Aaron Hicks bit, but yeah, I mean, it's not unreasonable to expect more. 
you know, it's not like a Kenta situation where he literally blew up and had the best season of his career at 32. This is still a guy going into his age 27 season. There's still room for growth. You just kind of wonder where it's going to come from because he already throws pretty hard. He's already got pretty good stuff. You know, where does that next year come from? Is it a developing more of a sinker to get grounders? I, I don't I don't know. I think it's not as obvious as it is with some other guys like Randy Dobnak. If he just starts striking people out, all of a sudden he's a, a lot more exciting of a pitcher. If Michael Pineda can simply stay on the field, a lot more exciting of a pitcher. With Barrios, it's like, I, I'm not really sure what that next step is. I think he's got it in there, and I think he's trying to find it. Nobody really works harder than him based on everything we see, but it's not obvious what he needs to do outside of maybe Wes Johnson, who's a pitching wizard, kind of figuring out whether it's sequencing or shaping a different breaking ball. I don't know what it is, but I agree with you. I think there's something more in there, and I think it's reasonable to wonder what that would look like and maybe even half expect it. But if he never gets there, that doesn't mean he wasn't a successful player in a good draft pick and a good twin. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, you know, and maybe it's a little bit unfair, but yeah, it's, you know, it, um, Bruce has still been a very good pitcher and he still has shown a lot of stuff. I mean, um, you know, he, he has been able to, to play at a high level. And I think, um, you know, like you said, he's been probably the, the twins best pitcher since Johan or Liriano and all that kind of stuff. Um, so kind of, you know, uh, I guess kind of circling back a little bit, just kind of, uh, maybe just, uh, you know, obviously, uh, being a guest on the podcast here today, if you just want to maybe tell people just a little bit about kind of, uh, what you do, uh, kind of following the twins and kind of where people can find, uh, find your stuff. Well, in addition to the twin stuff, I write game notes for Fox networks for NBA, NFL, MLB, and some college football and basketball as well. So I kind of have a fun day job in addition to this, but I worked for a website called zone coverage until the pandemic hit and they went through some, you know, some stuff where they had to cut the budget and I was one of those casualties. So I took the summer off. I knew I wasn't going to be going to twins games. And for a long time, there weren't any twins games. So I just kind of cleared my head and then I was like, you know what? I saw what Matthew Collar did with his purple insider. And I thought, why don't I do that with the twins? Maybe I'll make money. Maybe I won't, but I'll still be writing and I'll still be having fun. Made a little bit of money with it. Still having fun trying to figure out podcasting videos and sponsorships and all that sort of stuff. But accesstwins.substack.com is where you can find it. Just your email address is needed to subscribe. Money is appreciated more than people realize, but it's not a necessity if people are not in a place to, to do that. But again, my Venmo and PayPal are also listed if you want to make a one-time dona donation, excuse me. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at Brandon underscore W-A-R-N-E, and I've just kind of started Access Twins and the, the Twitter account for that site at Access Twins on Twitter. If people want to follow that, I'll follow them back and we can interact that way. Anybody who has paid anything, whether it's a single dollar or multiple dollars, gets added to a, an exclusive Slack channel where people can talk to me, kind of bounce thoughts off, and we can talk to each other and just kind of have some fun. But it's a little perk. It's not much, but it's, it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah. And, and just kind of talk about that. Just talk about a little bit, just kind of how it's, how different it's been, obviously trying to cover sports during a pandemic yeah. and kind of trying to, you know, it feels like this is just kind of the future of how sports media is evolving. Well, for me, it came down to not really feeling like I'm a candidate for a traditional media job. Like I applied for the star tribune job that just opened up. 
but my experience is kind of unconventional. If you put me in a spot where I need to write a game story in a column every week, I can do that. I would be just fine doing that if I had a, a good support system. But from an unconventional standpoint, my gifts are kind of all over the map. And when I assessed the media landscape after the pandemic started, I thought, okay, well, all these secondary media places are going by the wayside. What's the future for those? And it didn't look strong. So I figured, well, I may as well just go into business for myself because when I, I went back to zone coverage for a, a minute there in the fall and the, the motivation just wasn't there because it was, it was for a lot less money, first of all. And um, secondly, it just the, the motivation for myself was not in place like it is now where everything I write, I control the promotion of it. I control if the traffic's down, I can, you know, publish it again on Twitter and that sort of thing. It just, it feels more of a labor of love and a sweat equity thing. So I've, I've really enjoyed it and I'm, I'm hoping it can get markedly bigger to where it's a nice second income for now. It's just, uh, as people say, beer money for me, it's actually just like gas money and food money and uh, we'll see where it goes, but I'm going to keep putting my heart into it and, and hopefully it gets bigger every, every day. And who knows by the end of the year, I'd like to make some decent money. And first of all, make it uh it fun for people to check out yeah and you know obviously uh you got some great stuff over there and uh it's been fun to follow you kind of throughout uh you know i think probably since the start of 2019 uh, just kind of following your work and stuff like that and i think that's when a lot of people probably got reinvested in the twins is kind of when they started to get really good again and obviously with uh 2021 coming around the full season fans coming mm -hmm. back to the ballpark and stuff like that they just announced today um you know there's a lot more i guess you know, hopefully it's going to, you know, a lot of this kind of twins following and you're following will kind of blow up over this season because, you know, baseball is going to be back and there's going to be a whole lot more to break down, but just kind of uh, last or kind of last topic we'll uh, touch on here is just kind of, you know, in covering the twins, I guess, just kind of, you know, kind of talk about when, you know, obviously before the pandemic kind of covering the twins and kind of talk about what that was like. Well, I've never been a master of timing. And I started watching the twins in 1993, which I'm sure is before you were born. Yes. And yeah. So, um, they were, they won the world series in 91. Then in 92, they were pretty good, but didn't make the playoffs. And then 93 was the stretch that started where they were just awful. Whatever. I didn't, I, I was seven years old. I didn't really care. Uh, I just wanted to watch baseball. I started covering the twins as a job in 2013. Also a time when the twins were awful. And people were really on fire for the Twins. People were excited on Twitter when Target Field opened. And so I had to cover some really bad teams that nobody cared about. And you would tweet something and it would just be like people real negative. Joe Mowers this and Justin Moore knows that. And, you know, just cheap poll ads, all that stuff. But it helped me build relationships with a lot of people that I have to this day. Trevor Plouffe and I still talk every now and then I'm pitching a podcast idea to Ryan O'Rourke, who was a, a left-handed reliever for the twins for a couple years there. I did have a podcast with Cole DeVries for a while. He was part of those teams that were really bad. And even still, I mean, I have facial recognition with some of the big guys where they'll come by like Tory Hunter will give me a fist bump or, you know, if he and Kadir follow me on Twitter it's just the relationships that I've built and the things that you do to basically just show a human side of the game that have been the most important to me because, you know, we get tied up in the fact that they make a lot of money and they really do. But at the end of the day, they just want to be treated 
like anybody else wants to be treated. If you've got to write something about a guy that's negative, if you at least do it in a humane way, you can, um, you can look them in the eye the next day and know you did what you needed to do. And the first time that I learned that lesson is in 2013, I wrote a story in, I think it was early August about the twins having to trade Justin Morneau. And that basically I figured that the, uh, he was on borrowed time and I get to the clubhouse the next day and I'm the only one in the clubhouse from the media. And guess who was the only player that was in the clubhouse? going to guess it was Morneau. Yeah. And I'd never really talked to him before because I just was kind of a, a scrum guy, you know, go where the group goes. And then my, my individual interviews are usually like backup catchers and stuff, just because I love the guys that see that part of the game. And so I'd never really talked to Morneau and, and he didn't come over and talk to me. He probably didn't even read it, but it was just like an intimidation factor of, you know what? I didn't write anything. I didn't mean, I didn't write anything mean. I didn't write anything that would be um, unbecoming or untoward towards him. And Jerry Fraley, who has since passed on was a beat writer for the Rangers. And he says, if you're going to rip guys, rip them, but pull the bandaid off and do it in a way where they can't say you were lying. So that's really stayed with me all these years is that it's not hard to write a negative story if you can stand on your own two legs and defend it. And that's been something I think about pretty much on a daily basis. Yeah. And uh, I guess just kind of trying to think, I I mean, we've touched on a lot uh, kind of with uh, the twins, with kind of the outlook, the central, um, all that kind of stuff, I guess. Um, is there any, you know, other twins topics, any other just topics you have that, uh, you kind of want to mention, or maybe something you had down that you wanted to get out there? Um, I think the white Sox are overrated because of their lack of depth compared to the twins, but a lot of that can be closed. That gap can be closed if any one of a number of their guys becomes a superstar and they have some guys that are in that mix, Eloy Jimenez, there's Luis Robert. There's even Yohan Mankata is on the cusp. I know he had a tough year with COVID last year, but he's another guy who is on that cusp of superstardom. And they're going to give a lot of plate appearances to Adam Eaton, who frankly is not a good baseball player. And they're going to probably give a lot to Lurie Garcia, who he's not a starter. He's a decent utility guy. But if anybody gets hurt, that's going to be an issue for them. And they're giving a lot of plate appearances at DH or first base to Andrew Vaughn, who's, who's never played in the big leagues. He's a good prospect, but he's never played in the big leagues. So that depth is going to be tested. And if any of their big guys get hurt, that's a thousand plate appearances or 1200 plate appearances plus, plus Adam Eaton um, that are going to guys that are just not as good as your Luis Arise or Alex Kirilov or whoever else the twins force feed at bats over the course of the season to make up the gaps and that is going to hurt. And that's why I think there's a little bit of like the 2018 twins in this white Sox team, the 2018 twins were coming off a wild card game. They added Lance Lynn, Logan Morrison, Fernando Rodney. They added a bunch of guys and it just didn't go as they hoped. And I think they won like 78 games and, and fired Paul Mahler. So I think there's a very real chance that happens to the white Sox this season. And that's, the takeaway for me when people ask me what I'm concerned about with the twins is if the white Sox have someone develop into a superstar, the twins don't have the, uh, the, the, as big of an advantage as they do depth wise, because again, a superstar is going to smooth out some of the, some of those kinks. 
yeah, uh, definitely going to be something to watch going forward. Uh, you know, we've kind of been talking about this whole podcast. The White Sox are a very boomer bust team. They have, I mean, everybody's very high on their potential and I can totally see that. And Chicago's a big market that people really want to, want to pump up. Um, but yeah, there is a lot there, you know, they're a team that can fall apart very easily if uh, a couple of things don't go their way. But I mean, I guess that can happen with any team, but more so, like you said, with the, with the lack of depth, but uh I think that about does it. Um, is there any other uh, any other things? Honestly, uh, I'm just excited to get fans out to games. You know, they announced recently that it's going to be 10,000 fans for the opener. It's going to be fun to have a full season and just get to enjoy baseball a little bit more like we used to. Now, hopefully it's not in front of a strike because the CBA is going to be very contentious. But I'm just going to enjoy today, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Right. I think after the past year and just with everything, I think, yeah. Uh, you know, the one thing that I missed probably the most was, uh, was just being able to go to target field and just being able to sit at a ball game and like a day game or like a night game in July or August or something like that. So that's definitely something I'm going to try to do is trying and find a way to get to target field at least some point this year. But yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna, it's the little things you kind of have to try and get to. And, uh, being at target field, I think is something for a lot that a lot of people are going to try and uh, get out to do this summer. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that I'll be able to, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen because being able to watch it alone will be enough. But um, my goal is to get back as a fan at some point and hopefully as a media member at some point, but we'll see what happens. Right. There's a lot of, a uh, lot of optimism now for a lot of reasons, but a lot of optimism for the 2021 twins. So uh, thanks Brandon for uh, joining the podcast. Appreciate having you come on. Yes, of course. Anytime. All right. Uh, that was Brandon Warren. You can catch uh, him uh, on Twitter, access twins, all that kind of stuff. Um, so be sure to tune in next week. We'll uh, be diving into a lot more kind of touching into some of the other sports, but uh, you know, uh, spring training is going on uh, opening days <clears throat> coming up April 1st. So, uh, you know, keep checking back in for all the uh, kind of updates until then you're listening to the Minnesota sports podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota sports podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.